This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is Wednesday, June 23rd, 2010. I am Paul Fox and joining me as always is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hi there. How's it going, Kevin? I'm all right. Paul, how about you? Just uh, following the World Cup? Are you? Are you? you, you yeah. Who are you rooting for now? I mean, uh, I don't. As I think we talked about a little bit last time. I'm not a big sports follower, but I have heard that like a couple of teams have gotten uh, have fallen out of place. You know, uh, the U.S. team apparently is out of it. Um, I guess. Oh, not yet. Not yet. Not um, yet? Actually, no. the, the point that we're right now, the time of recording, um, soon the final game that the U.S. the final first group game, I guess the first stage game that the U.S. is going to play. Um, so it determines where they stay or they they go. So, so it's kind of like a wild card game. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, it's the it determines because it's, it's a point system. So this game and the way that England plays, which is playing the same, they're who are playing the same time. Uh, whoever wins or whoever scores the most goals is entry. What both games are there to determine whether the U.S. or the England goes goes ahead to the next round. I haven't really been following too much. I heard like apparently France is not doing too well. But the big news, I guess, if we wanted to kind of tie it back to Asia, was apparently the North Korean team yeah. uh, did really poorly, and there was all kinds of stuff going on in the news. I think on one news site they were saying that. Uh, Kim Jong-il was reportedly claiming he had ma a magic invisible telephone that allowed him to communicate directly with the coach or something. And right. people are all saying, oh, that, that the team better, you know, the team, the players better defect. Um, they better not go back to North Korea or they may never be seen again. And, you know, some uh, making jokes like that. But in all seriousness, um, I guess, you know, what did they lose by like seven points or something? It's a... Yeah, that, especially that's, after that's an extremely uh, high score for soccer, as I understand it. Right, and especially after only uh, actually scoring a goal against Brazil, which is pretty pretty much the heavy favorite to win the whole thing, even to man to be able to score a goal against one of the be best teams in the world. I mean, that's that was pretty good. And then the North Korean government decided to actually broadcast their second game against Portugal live. Um, except by the time Portugal scored their fourth goal, they decided to cut cut the live feed and go went back to a patriotic program saying the praises of uh, Kim Jong-il. So that always and works. Yeah, and apparently what the, some of the players were interviewed after the game and asked them what would happen to them. And I think one of them said that Kim Jong-il was going to make them work in the mine. So, <laughs> uh, so, you know, some people are saying, why wasn't Portugal easier on the North Korean players? Like North Korea now is this, this, this mysterious dark horse that everyone is pulling for. That uh, everyone's hope, hoping the players to to just sort of defect or, or hopefully they can win the next game. It's like the new uh, the new the new uh, underdog. Yeah, get those guys out of there. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> what was that? What was the soccer movie uh, with Sylvester Stallone? Um, you made a soccer movie? Yeah, he made. It was like a World War II thing, and they were prisoners of war, and it was him and and the the real soccer player Pele. I think was also had a was was an actor in this movie, and it was Sylvester Stallone and and some other people. I think it was called Victory, and it's not not too bad uh, in terms of you know being a set in that time period and being a sports movie. 
Um, mm. I, I remember it being more, you know, not being a big soccer fan. I remember it being fairly engaging. But we're not here to talk about soccer. What are we here to talk about? Movies. Yeah, we're here to talk about movies. So this is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and many things in between. So let's get to it and talk about some news. All right, so on our East Screen news for this week, um, first up, we want to talk a little bit about the new Jet Li film that's opening tomorrow, and that is Ocean Heaven. Um, and now, this has already opened in Shanghai, and it's um, it's not doing as well as expected. It's, uh, you know, some people have been really pushing this movie and, and promoting it, and, you know, this is heralded as sort of the Jet Li playing a serious role film. And, of course, it's dealing with very serious issues. You know, he has an aut uh, autistic son, and he himself is is dying of cancer, and he's trying to figure out, you know, how will, you know, who will care for his son. His, his wife has, I guess, passed away. Who will care for his son once he's no longer around? Um, so it's already, you know, just from that, you can tell it's set to be um, very heavy in terms of some of the content and some of the issues that it's dealing with. Um but how how's this film been faring, Kevin? I mean, is... um, yeah, they've been pushing it quite hard. The media has been pushing it very hard, um, trying to talk about the good word of mouth that's traveling around, how touching it is, um, trying to push the crew. It has a uh, Christopher Doyle as a uh, uh, what's the word? The, the, sorry, uh, Christopher Doyle as a yeah director of cinematography. Yeah. It has a uh, Joe Hisaishi the um composer who usually does the studio ghibli films it has a theme song sung by jay chow um it, it's been they've been trying to build this the buzz uh quite heavily but it only opened in sixth place um last week yeah so it's um, it's so. it seems like on paper this has got you know the 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 formula for success but apparently it's not not doing that well it has some award won some awards though it uh, according to this one article from film asia it's won three prizes at the Movie Channel Media Awards in Shanghai, um, including um, Best Film, Best New Director, and Best Actor categories. Uh, I'm not sure. What, what do you think of that? Is I mean, the, do you think that this film is going to be something that we'll see in other awards, you know, come later? You know, will this be something in the Hong Kong Film Awards? Because will it even qualify? It might qualify it does have a hong kong producer um echo is uh, a heavy investor in the film um bill kong uh they're echo's uh head i guess they're the president there he's his name was uh, as one of the producers um and uh, honestly i don't know if i can buy much see much credibility when it comes to chinese film awards i mean uh, any this movie is, has barely opened and yet it's qualified for awards uh even um like the report says, there's a movie called Heaven Eternal, Earth Everlasting, the film that wasn't strictly eligible, but was somehow invited anyway, and and um, it won an award. So it just seems like they're willing to bend the rules to maybe sort of promote certain films or to 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 um, give publicity to certain films, and I think this is what happened with Ocean Heaven. Mm. Um, what I've heard is that it's really not... Uh, it's an award, award-aspiring film, but it's not really a an award-earning film, from what I've heard. Mm. So I think it's very much giving 
respect to what seems like it should be the best film, but isn't really the best film. But they're trying to promote this as a very, very good film. So uh, I don't know how much credibility I see in this this CCTV movie media channel awards or something. Yeah. Well, one of the more interesting awards that they list on this article is that for best supporting actor, um, the award went to 86-year-old Yip Chun, who was the eldest son of real life Ip Man, and apparently he's making a, he has a role in the new Ip Man film, um, The Legend Is Born, Ip Man, which is directed by. Herman Yao, not to be confused with uh, Ip Man 2, starring uh, our good friend Donnie <laughs> and uh, Mr. Twister. Um, so that this is, you know, this is pretty interesting because uh, I don't believe that uh, Yip Chun is actually an actor by trade. Um, no, no, no. He's um, he I, th I think he taught Wing Chun. Um, he was also the consultant on uh, both Ip Man films, but has sort of come out after Ip Man 2's uh, success to sort of bite the hand that fed him. He's been criticizing Donnie's acting. He's been criticizing the the historical accuracy in the films and him taking part in this unofficial prequel and winning, you know, acting in it. It's it's very interesting how much publicity an 86-year-old man can get. Mm. Uh, and he is now number one on Mr. Twister's hit list. No! <laughs> he would dive in the time of this joystick! All right, uh, next bit of news, also coming from Shanghai. Um, this is a little you know, bit about the 3D, which we've talked about in the past, that um, you know, they're, they're really starting to push 3D films now. And uh, they had a, at the, at the recent Shanghai International Film Festival, there was a lot of talk with regard to 3D. Uh, one person, uh, President Yu Dong, who says that China has created a superhighway for 3D films, but it has so far left its lanes to the Hollywood studios. Um, and they've had a seminar, which was, um, I guess, in attendance, people like um, Pang Ho Chung, Tsui um, Tzu Ming, and, and others all talking about, you know, the, 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 this idea of uh, 3D in China. And, you know, they, they talk about Avatar, and they say that at some point that, you know, Avatar itself is still a very good 2D film. Um, and I think we've mentioned this before that, you know, 3D, you know, you know making garbage in 3D is still garbage. Um, and that this doesn't seem to be the focus. I mean, everybody seems to be very hot and excited about, you know, just applying 3D to everything. And that's somehow going to be the magic effect. And I think that's a little bit misguided. I don't know. What, what do you think, Kevin? It is the magic effect when you think about it in terms of money. Um, all these, you know, all these uh, investors they just want a big opening weekend, not only for the money but also for the publicity. If 3D can bring these big opening weekends, uh, if people keep continuing to watch 3D films indiscriminately without, you know, finding out what the content is or caring what the content is, then you know, 3D, we're gonna keep getting bombarded with 3D films. Yeah. A little bit later in the article, though, it, this and this is the part that I think kind of drives this point home for me. Um, there's, there's, a, I guess, a filmmaker Eric Edmides, if I'm saying his name correctly, who's part of the. He has a, a Kerner Group, which has developed its own 3D camera rigs and 3D viewing technologies. 
He argues that it's unwise to focus too much on Avatar. I mean, Avatar is obviously the, the you know, the, the big moneymaker in the room at the moment. Um, but he says better examples are My Bloody Valentine and Final Destination 4, both of which were very low-budget films that employed the 3D to increase their profitability. Um, and he says the real story is that 3D brings audiences back to the theaters. And, you know, he's not the only person to be saying this. Other people have said this. But I think his examples work against the whole concept of 3D. Um, I'm not about to go out and spend 100, you know, 125 Hong Kong dollars or $20 US uh, for a ticket to see My Bloody Valentine or Final Destination 4. Um, you know, if, if the movie is high caliber enough, something like Avatar, something that I think is going to lend itself well, you know, and have the visual spectacle necessary, then I'm willing to pay the, the extra money. Um, you know, Toy Story 3 is, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. You know, and animation. I like seeing animations. I'm a big fan of animation. I don't mind paying the extra for the animations. But for these, you know, low-budget horror movies, you're not. I'm not going to pay those kind of prices. And I don't think that there's going to be a lot of the general public who are going to want to see all of these low-budget features with these high-budget prices. And I mm-hmm. think uh, at some point there's going to be, you know, they're going to get sick of it and they're going to say no. And it can actually hurt the overall process of, of 3D. What do you think? Well, well you know, I, I think a better example would be Clash of the Titans, which was originally made in 2D and then took only six to eight weeks uh, before its opening to make, made it, make it into 3D to increase profitability. And it worked. The movie made, um, for, according to Box Office Mojo internationally, it made... $490 million uh, after a budget of 125 That's not a very, very high gross, but it put the movie, in, it, it put the film in profitability for Warner Brothers. I think it was in 2D, it would have done maybe two-thirds of that or maybe half of that. So you can't, you can't um, deny that the 3D, the quick, quick and dirty 3D helped the film. I don't know. See, I, I would have still seen the film without the 3D. And so, but, the, the yeah, fact and that the 3D was tacked tack, the- on, I think we, and when we talked about the film, I said it was useless. I mean, it really added nothing to the film. Um, yes, I think we were talking about a quality issue, and I agree with you that the 3D in Clash of Titans is easily, easily the worst I've seen uh, in any, any of the 3D films I've seen so far in the theater. But it helped bring audiences who don't, want to listen about who don't want to listen to anything about quality or who don't know about word of mouth who just saw oh this big hollywood film is in 3d and then they pay the money to go and watch it only to find out that it's crappy so it doesn't it doesn't stop general audiences from from not wanting to watch uh, a sort of i guess it's called like a mid mid high budget film i wouldn't say you know a big big blockbuster is going to attract everyone whether it's 3d or not but something like clash of titan i think the 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 success, the 3D really carried it over into probability. I wonder if this will become like a a rating standard at some point. You know, I mean, I remember when I back when I used to run my first website and I did film reviews, written film reviews, I would rate films not on a sort of a star um, standard or a number standard, but I'd rate it on a where you should see it. You know, and it was, I'd have like a, a must see it in the cinema uh, kind of standard, uh, like on opening day, or uh, rent, you know, rent it on DVD, or borrow the VCD from from a friend, or you know, see it if it comes on TV at some point. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, sort sort of a a rating standard on that you should you should see a film and give it a chance because everybody's going to be everybody's going to have their own perspective. Um, and I've never really believed that if a critic says a film's terrible, that you shouldn't see it simply based on any one critic's point of view, but that the venue in which you choose to see a film can can make the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe 3D will become you know a rating standard that this is a must see film in 3D. Or go and see it in 2D, or just you know stream it if you get you know once it goes on Netflix or something, um, and maybe that will be sort of the standard on because you know 3D films are going to be more expensive. I don't uh, you know unless somebody comes out and says we need to standardize the films, which I don't think the movie studios want to do. I mean they see this as a sort of a cash cow, and I think that for the cinemas, you know they're they're going to have to upgrade a lot of their technology, so it's going to be an expensive process for them to create more and more screens and and you know have have the guys washing the glasses at the end of every session um, and all that extra manpower that they need to do so um, I don't know all right our third bit of news for East Screen this week uh, is talking about the film that we talked about a couple weeks ago and that is the documentary The Cove um, so Kevin you brought us this story last time, so I'll let you give us a little bit more information on this update. Sure. Um, I mentioned this earlier in the week when I uh, updated my blog um, and health froze over. Um, that the cuff, uh, after Is that nosing- why it was so cold this week? <laughs> <laughs> God, you caught that. Okay. Uh, no, uh, yeah, the cuff, um, it lost a couple of theaters, I think I last mentioned, uh, mainly the one that was in Tokyo because of Fred's by right-wingers who perceived the film as anti-Japanese. Now, um, the distributor has uh, fortunately found a replacement theater in Tokyo. It will be shown in the same neighborhood um, in a small, similar-sized uh, art house theater called the Image Forum. Now, the Image Forum is very important. The Image Forum is a very important institution because it also runs a film school and it's been around for, I think, two to three decades. So, um it's a very prestigious uh, theater institute to be showing the film, and I'm glad that uh, someone finally stepped up and uh, is brave enough to to uh, show the film. Now, whether we, me or you, Paul, uh, whether we agree with the film or not, what we, whatever we think of the film, I think we agree that the film should be shown. So, uh, personally, I'm very, very glad that they found a theater in Tokyo to show the film. it's time to move on to our east screen pick for this week um and this week we're talking about the latest film from uh director barbara wong called the breakup club so kevin uh why don't you go in and give us a synopsis of this and tell us some of your thoughts sure uh the breakup club is the latest by director barbara wong who brought us such masterpieces uh like Wonder Woman, and uh, actually the only the film that I did like of hers is uh, Sixth Floor Rear Flat. 
she is reuniting with uh, the producer of that film, uh, Lawrence Chan, direct the screenplay for this film. Um, Breaker Club is sort of a blending or blurring of uh, tr- reality and, and, and fiction. Um, it stars J.C. Chan and um, Fiona Sit, who have been rumored to be a couple. Um, so that's why I guess they're a natural choice here to be playing a couple in the film. Um, but even though the film takes a documentary style, actually they play fictional characters. J.C. plays a character named Joe, who's kind of a, a loser who goes from one part-time job to another and likes to quit when he doesn't like it. Um, he's in a relationship with um, Flora, who is played by Fiona Sit. She has, uh, she's comes from a poor family. Um, she's, she doesn't, she, well, she says she doesn't like uh, guys who are not ambitious. She works very hard at her job to make a living. Um, and it seems like they're, they're kind of an on and off couple. Uh, so during one of their off times, uh, Joe decides to go to an audition to a film made by Barbara Wong. Um, so apparently Barbara Wong is trying to make a film that's from a real story and she's auditioning with people about their breakup stories and Joe is one of the the people and he talks about a website called breakupclub.asia where uh, if you put in uh, some a couple's names and you split them up and then you'll be able to get your girlfriend back. So so uh, Braba and, and Lawrence gives Joe a camera and he captures the entire process with the help of his best friend, uh, played by Patrick Tang, um, who hasn't been really in enough movies, I think, and it shows here that he could be quite a good psychic character. Uh, anyway, so, so the um, JC uses the website and he captures it on camera and Flora comes back and then they, you know, the camera captures them being together and how how well they're together and then they argue and then they split again and then JC decides to find some other way to get her back. And it kind of goes back and forth like this. Um, the the It's kind of a slice of life for this couple until um, a, a graffiti artist called Lies, a Japanese graffiti artist, he comes into the picture and he kind of shows Flora a better life without Joe. Uh, so I'll stop there with the plot description. Um, the problem is that the two main actors are very good together. They act like a real If the rumors are true, that's because they're a real couple. Um, so they're very convincing and they're very good together. And um, I've heard that much of the script is uh, improvised. Much of the dialogue is improvised between the two. So uh, putting that into account, the dialogue is very realistic. Um, like I said, they make a very believable couple and their interactions are very believable. Uh, whether they're arguing or whether they're together or not. Um, so, you know, it's always fun to watch them together. But um, the problem is that the characters themselves are very unclear. They're very not very convincing. For example, um, they share an apartment in Central, uh, pretty much near the mid-levels. Uh, I know someone that, that lives literally, literally a block from where they shot that film or where the location and his rent is in five digits. So it's it essentially at a, at a rent that in no way these characters can make, and yet they live there because I guess Barbara Wong thinks it's scenic, and she probably hasn't had to work a day as a, as a white-collar white collar worker, so I guess she doesn't really understand um, real life, I suppose. So that's kind of a very misguided decision. That just kind of snowballs worse and worse and worse as it goes on because one you can see why 
Joe, what Joe sees in Flora, because Fiona says is very good in the role. She's very good at acting cute because, you know, she has the very adorable voice and she has a very, you know, cute demeanor, persona. She's very likable in the film. But the, the Joe character, he's so unlikable. He just, he's essentially a jerk. He's lazy. And there's really, you don't really see what Flora sees in him. And, you know, they're so miserable together that they're so miserable to each other. And by the end of the film, you just think, oh, they, they totally deserve each other. That they deserve to be miserable to each other because that's the only way they could be happy. And, 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 and it just, you don't really feel for them. If you don't really feel for them, then what's the point of watching them argue together and, and you know, be in love with each other if you know that it's going to make each other miserable later on? And then that okay, that's fine, that's fine. Um, some people like the some people in the audience seem to really like the film. I heard a couple of sniffles towards the end, and uh, it does hit that kind of emotional. It does earn earn its emotions, I would say. Um, but then, at around that one hour and a half mark, it commits total cinematic suicide because the whole film has been done in a documentary style. So. Barbara Wong decides to spend not only the last 15 minutes to justify its own style, but also to, one, try to be clever, and two, gives herself more excuse to be in the film. Um, at one point, how do I say this? At one point, the, the real co-producer of the film uh, enters the film and talks about the film within the film and says, this is a really good movie. I think people could really love it. Um, is that kind of total self-indulgence that really alienates the audience only to really justify itself or in, and to justify its own style. And I think they didn't really need to do that if they just stuck to the whole uh, cinema verite, the henhouse style, realistic photography. I think the characters would have been just convincing. What we saw in the film would have just been convincing and they wouldn't have, have to change any of the shooting style without... And yeah, they wouldn't have to change it. Uh, and the whole thing is the whole thing would have lacked this, would have been indulgent free. It would be fine. Um, I wouldn't hate it as much. But right now, it's the last fifteen minutes really, really killed the film for me. Um, and of course, some people would say, "Oh, but but th th that's what you know, young people really like. You know, these characters. That's what youth is like." And that's the whole. That's the exact problem I have with X. Okay, so these characters, you know, they're real. They're convincing, but. Who cares if you don't even like them in the first place? Um, so Breakup Club, I think the first 90 minutes of the film um, can be recommended just to see kind of a realistic, a more realistic depiction of a relationship. Um, even though the characters aren't entirely likable, at least the film is, you know, entertaining, it's well shot. But there's one exact point, you, you, you know what I mean, that you just completely stop the film. Just to stop it. Don't watch the last 15 minutes of it. It'll leave a much, much better impression. Um, so what do you think, Paul? Yeah. Um, well, I, first, I, I've liked quite a few of Barbara Wong's earlier films. I really liked Sixth Floor Rear Flat. Um, I really liked uh, Happy Funeral, the, the, the follow-up to that. Mm -hmm. But well, I've noticed that there's a trend with her, and that is she always ends up putting herself in the film somehow. It's mm -hmm. like she's not content being a director. She wants to be an actress. And if she mm -hmm. wants to be an actress, then quit directing and go be an actress. Um, I, I really dislike when directors, you know, use their position to turn the camera on themselves. You know, M. M. Night Shyamalan does this, and I can't stand it. 
Um, I, I, I don't like it when directors put themselves in the film. Um, so a, as you mentioned, it, it starts off with her and with Lawrence um, coming up with this idea that they want to do interviews with kids to find some interesting stories and then turn those stories into a film, which is fine. You know, she, one, one of her best films is a documentary called, um, um, uh, what is it? I can't remember. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, private, something uh, women's private. private parts. Yeah. Right. Women's private parts. It's a great, great documentary. Um, you know, and she puts herself in that as sort of the interviewer and that's fine here. It's kind of the same thing. Only it's all fake, you know, for the most part. Um, she's playing herself. Lawrence is playing himself. And then if you're going to do that approach, get real kids, do, do the real thing, you know, be bold enough to do what they wanted to do for real. You know what I'm saying? Um, don't get actors because for me that, that kind of ruined the whole premise by, you know, having it be JC and, and Fiona. Um, it it was meaningless because then it just becomes a a script. It's no, it's no longer, it no longer has that sense of realism. So that kind of totally took me out very early on. Um, the, the fact that they put themselves in it so much. Um, then you've got this whole idea of the breakup club, which is actually a website um, that that the, the main character Joe, uh, J.C. Chan, says he saw. He, he says he saw this website where you go and basically what you do is you put in. There there are three rules that you have to know the person uh, or that know the one of the people um, in, in person in in reality, and they have to be in love. And some there's one other rule, so it's kind of kind of like Death Note. In a way, um, I got that sense. But you basically put in the two people's names, and by so like you know, if I wanted to break up my friend and his girlfriend, I put their names into this computer, and in doing that, my girlfriend who has dumped me will come back to me. You know, that's that's sort of how this this works. This website, but it's really weird because the website doesn't work on any computer except this one computer at this cafe. They never really go into why you know, what's the point of that? Um, it just seems like this kind of weird, strange device that doesn't really seem to have a sense in the rest of the film. Also becomes a kind of a who cares. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's also, I don't know, there, there's, there was a, a meaningless plug of the, the local shop, uh, com, And I'm thinking, you know, what do they get? Andy Lau to, to do the, the film advising here. It's like, it was such an obvious, you know, commercial spot. The characters had nothing to do. They were just out shopping. And it's just a really long shot of them coming out of this shop with bags. I'm like, come on. Um, yeah, and then next next scene is her going, I had a really good day. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, it just, whole, it just had, you know, it had the potential to be a much smarter film. And to really, because a lot of it, like you said, it's, it's handheld. It's the character's... Um, often the actors themselves using cameras and, and the camera shots that they're taking, um, it does switch back and forth between sort of a film look and a video look. Um, but it, it works in, in many places. So it could have been a really smart look at relationships and the use of new media by young people. I mean, they've had a lot of problems with young people, you know, um, documenting their relationships and then putting these relationships up on things like YouTube um, and they've had problems with people like, you know, taking video of themselves in intimate acts and then the couple later breaks up and these end up on YouTube and there have been scandals and, and problems with that. 
you know, it, it could have really gotten deeper into those kind of issues. It touches on them in a few places, but it's never really smart about it. Um, but the thing is, is that the performances were really good. I, you know, mm -hmm. both of the leads were, were, I thought, pretty amazing. Um, very realistic. But you were right. I didn't really care about them. I mean, it was um, it was almost like they were too realistic. They were like kids that I know or students that I know in the way that their their attitudes were, and I just I didn't feel for them that much. Um, and then you've got this character, this this love triangle aspect that comes in with this character, uh, Lies, spelled like lies. Um, <clears throat> he comes into the film, and then it takes on sort of this very solid romantic drama narrative and even the film look at that point it gets away from sort of a handheld look and it becomes very much like a standard film and it almost doesn't seem to fit at that point um, because it becomes such a big change and then it gets really overly dramatic and it becomes a boy meets girl boy loses girl boy needs to get girl back kind of a story um, and then as you mentioned you get um, towards the end and they build to this sort of twist ending, which I won't talk much about here um, for in lieu of spoilers. And it was just like, really, you know, uh, it was more self-indulgence, like you were saying. Um, that, that, that one scene that you mentioned where one of the actual film producers is saying, oh, this is going to be a really great film. It's like, really, come on. You know, I, I... But the thing that was amazing was I think that this film is doing pretty well. Um, the screening that I went to daytime screening on a school day was packed in a really big house and I was like the oldest person there <laughs> and it was all kids in school uniforms who I'm assuming were playing hooky to watch this film um, I don't know maybe they had afternoon session but it was you know it was a time when school should be in session so I'm not sure but I was just I was amazed I figured it'd be a pretty empty empty screening and it was packed and it was all packed with secondary school or what in the US they call high school students. Um, so the film is getting a lot of play and it seems to be pulling in a lot of young people, um, maybe mm -hmm. because of the two main actors, maybe because of word of mouth, I'm not sure. Um, I do have to say that that Patrick Tang plays this character, Sonny Deep. I mean, he made the film for me. I wanted to see a whole lot more of him. He was, he was funny. He was all right. He definitely needs more opportunities. Um, a little bit annoying in places, but I think that was what his character was supposed to be. So I think he did it well. But yeah, I'd like to see a lot more of him. Yeah, I, I think about the the kids. Um, it just goes to prove either two, you know, one of the two things. One, we hate kids. Um, <laughs> we hate young people. Uh, we're way too old for this, even though I'm still in my twenties, um, which you know confuses me. I don't know why. Yeah, you're just a baby. Why. I, I don't know why people connect these characters. I mean, okay, so so I've heard at other screenings that people also hate the JC character and they're really into it in screenings and they're, and they're talking to their friends about how how bad the JC characters is. So then, what does it mean? Why is it so popular with them? Is it because so then they they don't they don't so they see see themselves and criticize themselves, or because well, they know, see people around them like that? It's it's I, I didn't hate the JC character. I, you know, it was just, I know a lot of kids like him. It's like he's directionless, he's got a couple part-time jobs, spends the day playing video games, sleeping late. You know, when he gets some money, he takes his girlfriend out. And that's about it. She, I felt, was equally annoying. I mean, she's mm -hmm. 
you know, very much a, a gong noi or, or gong noi or how, gong how, yeah. Yeah, how, gong how you would girl, say it, yeah. you know, where she's, she's interested in going on shopping and, and doing her thing. And, you know, her boyfriend needs to be a certain way with her. And if he gets out of line, then she takes off and, and then sort of sets up the premise for him going and using the breakup club website to try and, you know, get her back uh, a few times. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. It, it seems it seems to definitely be speaking to a younger audience primarily i think because of the some recognition that they see that you know in their generation these characters are people that they recognize maybe even in themselves i'm i'm not sure i don't know but once upon a time i mean hong kong romantic comedies actually had likable characters look at um you know the few hundred percent franchise. Uh, even though the whole genre, uh, the whole the whole franchise went overkill. I mean, you still had likable characters who who were enduring to the audience. Instead, now you got these you know Patrick uh, Patrick Kong movies. You know, with with uh, young lovers that that essentially you know um, manipulate each other into happiness. And you got X, and you got uh, Breakup Club. It's you know it's annoying the new likable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. one thing one thing I will say is and again I don't want to I don't want to give too much of a spoiler away here the the very final shot of the film is not of the two main characters but it's of two other characters and I won't say who those characters are uh, but they're two supporting characters and I found that to be a, that that left me with a few questions you know um of of why those two characters were we're in the last shot together um, mm-hmm. with regard to, you know, the whole concept and, and things that it, that had happened and, and everything. So that's uh, something we can talk about, you know, in more detail, maybe offline, because I don't want to spoil that ending for people who haven't seen the film yet. Um, I would say that if you have a chance, you know, this is, it is worthwhile seeing. It can be a bit arduous to get through though. Um, this would be something you'd want to, you know, maybe wait and see on video or, um, you know, I'm not sure if it'll be out on a VCD anytime soon or um, mm-hmm. if that's still a viable format. But yeah, it's not something that I would recommend rushing out and necessarily seeing in the theater. Um, I think we speak Cantonese um, and and know, you know, what I know. I, I, you want natural dialogue, natural acting. Um, I think this is certainly worth watching of a of a local audience, but. I still insist that you 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 turn it off after an hour and a half. Turn it off before the big twist. Turn okay, exact place is turn it off before the screen goes white. Turn it off and then your life will can move on. You can feel bad for these people. You can feel emotions for these people, and you'll be fine with the film. But after that, yeah, that's you just you just putting yourself in a world of misery there.
All right, it's time for our West Screen news for this week. Um, up first, a little bit of news that we touched on a couple weeks back, and that is regarding the new Planet of the Apes prequel or reboot, or I'm still not really sure how they're going to uh, try and sell this to us. But um, last time we talked about uh, James Franco being cast sort of in the lead role, and now uh, Frida Pinto, uh, who was an uh, actress in Slumdog Millionaire, and she is currently in talks to take up a role. And they're also mentioning uh, John Lithgow. So this is starting to shape up to have a, a somewhat interesting cast. It's still not clear whether, um, you know, whether these characters would be playing humans or apes. Um, it's all, all we really know is that James Franco is sort of like this scientist who's um, got a very pivotal role in some kind, of, some kind of action or some kind of deciding factor that leads to the escalation of intelligent apes and a war that breaks out between them and the humans. Um, but I, you know, the more news that comes out about this, the more I'm sort of getting excited about it, especially now that John Lithgow is rumored to be attached. Um, wonder he, wonder if he's going to play an ape. I mean, maybe he'll play a Martian that's coming to earth to yeah. write reports and investigate. Or maybe he'll be like that. the, he'll be like the guy that, sees Bigfoot in the woods. Oh, no, he's already done that. Yeah, <laughs> Harry and the Hendersons, right? Um, but no, I'm, I'm, you know, I think this is coming along nicely, so I'll be interested interested to see where it goes. Um, it says, Peter Jackson's visual effects house, uh, Weta, or Weta, mm -hmm. is going to be doing um, photorealistic apes rather than costumed actors. So, you know, we're not going to, it's not going to have the look of the recent reboot, uh, the Tim Burton reboot, where it was, you know, with uh, sort of based on the old style with people wearing costumes and some cosmetic makeup, you're going to have a lot more CGI being applied. And I'm, I'm assuming that uh, they'll probably shoot for this to be in 3D as well. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see how it develops. Um, also speaking about CGI and... Uh, effects uh the film the new leonardo dicaprio film inception which i believe it's already opened uh, internationally hasn't it um, uh no uh july 14th july 14th okay but it's being delayed in hong kong um we're not going to get it um on july 14th when are we going to get it here we're going to get it two weeks later and uh july 29th okay and um it'll be his... going up against uh the M. Night Shyamalan film, uh, The Last Airbender. Airbender! No, but uh, so, so we were, before we started recording, we were wondering, we were discussing why uh, they decided to bump it back. So what do you think, Paul? Why Why do you think? Yeah, I think this is, I think that the, they don't want to go head to head with uh, Toy Story 3, which has already been released internationally. Um, so they're not going to have that problem when it gets released in the States. But uh, I think the original release date was putting it up against Toy Story 3. Toy Story is a huge franchise here in Hong Kong. Those Pixar films tend to do well. They tend to get released uh, around Chinese New Year, usually. They, they you know, the, the ones that typically come out in the Thanksgiving time period, December time period in the States tend to be held for the Chinese New Year release over here. Um, Toy Story 3 is a summer release, so it's being, it was delayed a little bit before it's released over here, I'm assuming for uh, dubbing or, or subtitling or whatever 
reason um, I was hoping they'd get it at the same time, but they didn't. But I, I'm almost certain that the the distributors don't want to see Inception going up against that because I think that that's going to do some big box office numbers. Um, personally, I, I disagree. I think they're afraid of fantastic water babes. No, I'm just kidding. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's Aku, Aku and, and it's Alex Fong. And it's, no, um, no, really. I, I, I disagree because I think Inception doesn't really share the same audience as Toy Story 3. I mean, Toy Story 3 will attract kids, of course, uh, family audience, uh, date, date audiences probably. But Inception is really kind of a male-oriented action sci-fi. I think so. I don't know. I mean, because it's got Leo. It's and, got Leo, yes. You know, I mean, Leo is a. I think he's still a quantity. Uh, you know, he he still has the ability to pull in the the female audience just on the fact that he's Leo. And when a lot of females internationally think of Leo, they're not thinking of The Departed. They're thinking of Titanic. You know, mm-hmm. so I don't know. It, you you could be right. You could be right. But I, I tend, I don't know, I'm, 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 I'm going to stick to my guns and say that they don't, they just don't want to go up with Toy Story. Yeah, I, I think I, now that I more think about it, I think it's more because that you have an established franchise uh, that's making its return after ten years, that's having a huge, huge promotional push here, and you got this film that's directed by a guy who directed something from an established franchise, but it, essentially it's an original story idea that has no established audience yeah um and the it, trailer is, beyond... is just weird right right <laughs> but it does promise it is very big it promises a lot of action but somehow it just it won't be as as potentially big as something uh, something from a franchise so i think going up against airbender the last airbender which is also trying to begin a new franchise i think i guess it is a smarter choice for warner brothers yeah. Well, I'm going to see all of them. I mean, they're, they're, oh, of course. They're, they've got my money. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> they, can, they can start cashing their check because uh, I think that there's a certain demographic out there who's, you know, uh, science fiction fans and, and, and whatnot who are, you know, they're going to see all three. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see some of these films, how they're pitted up against each other. Um, is Inception a film that's really going to hurt the box office draw of uh, of Airbender? I don't know. Airbender is a pretty popular um, an- animation series. It's not that popular over here in Hong Kong, though. So, you know, it does have the it does have the Asian element kind of built into the narrative. So it's it's kind of hard to see how those two will play out. You want to make a prediction? Um, put some no, money, Inception. Put some money just... down on what's going to have the bigger box office. That, no, just, that just the, yeah, just the um the more bigger special effects, the the bigger star. I think that's Inception is is going to be the last Airbender. Mm-hmm. Um, that's for sure. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take you up. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say the Air, Airbender Airbender is gonna do better. That weekend. you think so? Yeah, because it's gonna pull in kids, whereas Inception's not. So mm. kids are always also more money. So we're gonna what are we gonna bet? We're gonna bet um a bubble tea. How's that? All right, but I want an expensive bubble tea, Paul. Okay. One of those fancy, <laughs> fancy flavors with caramel and then gold sprinkling on top, right? You got it. All right. All right.
right, it's time to talk about our West screen film for this week. And that is the new uh, Hollywood comedy, Hot Tub Time Machine. So, uh, Hot Tub Time Machine. How can I, how can I talk about this film? I wonder what it's about, Paul. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's this hot tub, and it's a time machine. <laughs> and that's about all you need to know. Um, so basically, um, there are three characters, uh, and, and they're, they're middle-aged men. And uh, they're they're getting together because one of their friends has uh, basically they think he's tried to commit suicide, and he, he, they've come and vi- came and visited him in the hospital. And so the the three friends decide they need a weekend away, and they decide to go to their old stomping ground. And the main character, played by John Cusack, he decides to um, bring his uh, his nephew along with him and his, the, the nephew is the one that's sort of going to keep them straight uh, the three guys and so basically they go they go to this place where they used to party um, in their youth and it's all run down it's an old ski resort it's 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 gone to hell and um, it's 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 not what they thought it was going to be but they end up getting drunk and spending some spending the night in this time machine and somehow or the, this hot tub and somehow the hot tub turns into a time machine and sends them back to the 80s um to 1986 to be precise and they find themselves um as their younger selves even though they see themselves as sort of their their middle-aged selves when they look in the mirror they see you know their youthful selves reflected and everybody sees them as that but now they sort of have the knowledge that they have of, of their adult life, and they're starting to figure out, you know, what what do they have to do? Um, does history have to repeat itself? Is this a case of like Back to the Future, where they have to make certain things happen for the future itself to happen, or can things be altered? Um, and so this is where the film really starts to get interesting because they start really playing with um, other films about time travel. Um, there's a lot of play on films from the 80s, music from the 80s, a lot of great music here. Um, you know, they're making fun of all kinds of movies, film references from Terminator, Back to the Future. The film doesn't take itself seriously at all. Um, it, it knows that the idea of a time machine in a hot tub is ridiculous, but it doesn't care. Um, it's setting up this premise to get these characters um you know to go back in time and you've got a lot of sort of in-joke references for example crispin glover who played uh george mcfly that was marty's father in the back to the future films he's got sort of a side role here and he's pretty pretty much one of the funniest uh characters in the film um <laughs> i i don't want to give too much of a spoiler away you may have heard heard about it already because this is one of the things that a lot of people talk about but what happens and ultimately ends up happening to his character throughout is just really, really funny. Uh, John Cusack himself, you know, he was an 80s teen sort of heartthrob. And I grew up watching uh, many of his films and liking many of his films. One Crazy Summer is still one of my uh, favorite films to date. And he, you know, he's, he's matured into a very good adult actor. I was reading the Roger Ebert review and he's basically said, he has not seen a bad John Cusack film. Um, so he really likes John Cusack. And you've also got like Chevy Chase making a cameo here. Chevy Chase was a big SNL star in the early 80s. Um, 
So yeah, really lots of great references to 80s films, 80s music, um, and lots of in-jokes. But because of that, this film may not speak as well to people outside of my generation. I mean, they go back basically to 1986. And this was the year that I was graduating um, secondary school. I'm dating myself here. You know, <laughs> I was graduating from high school. So every almost everything that was in this film I was picking up on. But I was thinking, you know, here I'm in, in Hong Kong watching this film. I was watching it with Gia. And she was laughing at some of the stuff, but there was a lot of stuff that she didn't get. And as I mentioned last week, I'm really surprised they brought this film to Hong Kong because it's so intertextual and there's so much context here based on a certain demographic. Um, you know, humor, There, there is a lot of humor that's physical and, and you know, there are a lot of jokes here that other people would get, but there's so much more that's really targeted to people in my generation from this period, I'm really surprised that it's doing as well as it's done. Um, the humor does get a bit crass in places, um, you know, a little bit too much for my taste in, in a couple of the jokes, but a couple of the gags. But overall, I think, you know, some really funny stuff, and I really, really enjoyed it. Kevin, how about you? Now, this is a film that's probably, you know, a decade or so before your time. What, what was your take on it? Well, I, I kind of had a rough idea of what, you know, 80s pop culture was like. And um, I also watched it with a friend who was born in the mid-70s. So he, he got much of the, the, the images and asked, asked did I. And I, yeah, I agree with you that people who didn't, who don't really get the, the, the context of the 80s uh, pop culture reference, they, they might find themselves a little bit outcast uh, by the film. Um, I got a lot of the jokes, so I, I loved it. Uh, the Motley Crue thing, uh, you know, the great. use of the song. Um, and even then, yeah, the running gag with Crispin Glover, that was excellent. Uh, um, the cast has a lot of fun. Uh, Craig Robinson, the 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 man who, uh, the African-American character, I have to say. Um, he, he's, he always steals, he steals pretty much every movie he's in. Yeah, um, yeah. And he is great here um john cusack is charming as always but um john cusack as, as producer he's produced he's a producer on this film as produced and steve pink the director he um was john cusack's co-writer on the films that he uh that cusack also produced and they made films like gross point blank high fidelity and those were much better films and i think for john cusack uh production or production or a john cusack producer effort uh, it should have been much better. I think they had a lot of um, good material. They have a really great cast. and But it just kind of boiled down to a lot of cheap, crude visual gags. Um, it, I, I, don't mean that I, I don't mean to say that I didn't have fun with the film. Like I said, I had a lot of fun. I laughed at, uh, at many places where, you know, that you're supposed to laugh at. But afterwards, you just kind of felt there were a little too much, too much dirty jokes and less... Smart jokes. It wasn't really as smart as it could have been. Um, also, at points the, with a lot of movie references, pop culture references, it kind of felt like it was Judd Apatow light to me. Mm. Um, so to me, it was a little underwhelming uh, in, in hindsight, I suppose. Um, and also, it kind of boils down to a very quick ending that doesn't really um, do enough of the concept or doesn't really play enough of the time traveling enough because it could be again very very clever film especially the the way that the plot was um unfolding 
Um, so it, it was. It, I'm kind of conflicted about this film. I had a lot of fun, but also there were a lot of things that kind of made underwhelming. Um, one thing I do also agree with you is the soundtrack. I don't listen to much 80s music. Um, in fact, for some reason, I guess to people in the 90s, the 80s was kind of the period that, that people would like to forget. But um, the music and the 80s music in the film was great. And it's kind of making me want to buy, go out and buy the soundtrack and kind of making me want to visit, you know, I guess I, I can't say revisit because I never visited. So visit, uh, become a fan of 80s music. Mm. So maybe after recording, you could you could give me some uh, you give me some recommendations, Paul. I would listen to some eighties music, sure, yeah. some Poison, uh, some Motley Crue. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for our show this week but before we close off i do want to talk about uh some of the comments that we got uh, from our episode last week we had a couple comments left on the site from uh listener uh teen lun lao or lao teen lun if uh we're going by the correct uh chinese i guess um first he had to give me a correction he says uh, i have to correct paul on this but uh jake gillenhall as i was saying it uh last week was is pronounced Gyllenhaal, um, and it's not with the hard G. So I do apologize for my mispronunciation. See, I'm all about the hard G. Um, hard G, hard hard PG, not so much the hard R, though. I'm, I'm not I'm not big on the hard R. Um, You're so, yeah. OG, though, right, Paul? OG. <laughs> yeah. So I do apologize for that, uh, and I apologize to Mr. Gyllenhaal and his sister Maggie, if they ever happen to uh, listen to the show. Um, yeah, I do need, but I, you know, uh, one of our other listeners, David was saying that, uh, he was really good in Zodiac and, uh, that's a film that I haven't seen. I also haven't seen, uh, Donnie Darko, which I think was what kind of launched, uh, his sister's career. So I need to get out and see both of those. Um, and then, uh, he, he also says that, um, he commented when we were talking about gallants, he said we were having some difficulty thinking about the term, you know, the, the characters in Gallants call each other by uh, Seeing mm-hmm. um, or, or, you know, which is sort of a, a term within martial arts schools to talk about, you know, your older sort of Kung Fu brother. And he says um, he thinks that a good, a close English translation would be uh, upperclassmen. And yeah, I think that's a, it, it, this is one of those terms which really doesn't have a very good translation in English it's it, it, culturally um, mm-hmm. especially in American English you know upperclassmen kind of reflects the notion of the hierarchy of school but right. it doesn't give that sense of like family or or brotherly bonding um, especially you know I'm, which it might be different in the British school system but in the American school system where it's like kind of very open and then everybody sort of fends for themselves um, you pretty much don't associate with the upper classes at all and um, you may have a friend here or there, but it doesn't have that, you don't have that same sense of connection. So it's one of those that's really kind of hard to do in terms of translation or subtitles just because of, you know, the cultural difference. Yeah, that's why most films, I think, just go with the character, the names of the characters instead of actually, you know, with these, you know, uh, upperclassmen names or whatever, yeah. brother or whatever. Yeah, because brother, you know, you, you know, you could do it as brother. Which you know, it's it's kind of like the African American 
concept of calling somebody your brother, you know, mm -hmm. where it's like sort of a human bond that extends a little bit, you know, a little bit into family, but it's not completely based on a bloodline. So I, I was thinking WWE, uh, Hulk Hogan, I think. Brother. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who was the, uh, who was the other guy? I think he became a, um, um, well, there was this guy who he's like a senator now. Um, uh, Jesse, Jesse Ventura. Jesse Ventura. Uh, he was in Predator. Uh, we got a new Predator film coming in a couple weeks. All right, um, brother. Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> Macho Man Randy Savage snap into a Slim Jim. You know, there's it's some crazy, crazy stuff on those shows. Um, also very much 80s references, you know, Hulk Hogan and uh, all that stuff. Um. Yeah, so we do appreciate the comments, and if you'd like to leave comments, you can always do so over on our website, and that is www.concast.com. Um, you can leave comments for us, so you can send us an email, and if you'd like to send us an audio file, um, you can send it to us via email. We'll play it here on the show. Uh, if you'd like to follow along with us, you can follow us on iTunes. Um, you can follow me. Uh, via my iTunes link over on the website. And Kevin, you can follow him at, what is it again, Kevin? The Golden Rock on Twitter. Yeah, and it's uh, The Golden Rock, all is one word. Uh, yes. On Twitter, and you can keep up with Kevin and his causing hell to freeze over whenever he writes a blog, <laughs> uh, making <laughs> Satan very angry. <laughs> so yeah, you can keep up, keep up with us uh, through those sites. So the show um, will be on a little bit of a hiatus for the next few weeks because I'm going to be headed off to the U.S. to visit relatives and parents. But we are going to have a couple special episodes uh, sort of as, as filler where we won't be talking about uh, the current stuff, but we'll be talking about some stuff on video. Um, and those will be shorter episodes, but they'll sort of hopefully keep the momentum going until I can get back to Hong Kong. So we hope you'll stay with us for those, and we'll look forward to being back here and talking about all the new stuff that's coming out in the next couple of weeks once I get my backside back into Hong Kong and back into my little recording room here. So until next time, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you then. See you all next time, and have a good trip, Paul. <laughs>